Thank you, Pete and Linda. We need some prayers. We need to turn the mic down. This last week, I received an email and also a phone call just to make sure I got the email. And there's an opportunity for us having one of the most unique evangelistic outreach this church has ever had. And that unique outreach is the possibility of having Walter Vife come to the area. He uh, wants to come and have it in a neutral position, neutral place, and that's going to be our, our catch is trying to find a big hall. We're looking at the uh, university in Redlands to see if we might be able to have it there. He doesn't want to have it in a church because he's more apt to be able to get uh, college students and professors to come if it's in another type of, of a meeting place. The other problem is that we don't have a lot of time to plan because the only two weeks that he has, and it would only be two weeks in length, the only two weeks that he has available is the last two weeks in September. Do you see we don't have much time? Um, so we need to pray that the Lord will be able to do it. Otherwise, it's another three years that we could possibly get him to the area. So um, remember that in your prayers at home and... Uh, we do have another church that will co-sponsor with us to be able to get him into the area. And uh, I think the Lord is, is really leading in this, in this great event. Is that hooked up right, guys? It's not hooked up here. Are we hooked up down there again? Let me check. Well, that one's on. I got a green light here. Tom, you may have to go up and help. It's not. There's another area that we want to look at. And um, you see it in the bulletin is the fact that we have a possibility, we've been checking this last week, a possibility of being able to set up for video to be able to have DVDs instead of the audio and the CDs that we'll be able to get the PowerPoints on the video as well and to be able to upload it to our website. And uh, see, the devil just does not want us to do a thing here. All right, when all else fails, let's reboot the thing if we can. You think so? Come on up. I can kick it. I try to escape, and I don't even get it out of that. Well, that's what I'm afraid of, but it's on battery, and it's not going to reboot it from there. Yeah. Probably ought to call up the five-year-olds to come up here and 
They know how to run these things better than we do. Yes, it is. Well, maybe it isn't. Nope, it's plugged in. I've got a green light here. Is there a green light on up there? There is? Okay. We'll see what this does. See, we get another guy up here as well, too. If we get the video, it will be a bunch of things that will be changed. First of all, we won't have wires like this hooked up to computers. It'll be wireless. Instead of having the one screen come down, we'll have two monitors on the side, which will help in being able to see. The other thing that we'll be able to do with it is the fact that they can record up there. We will have four cameras and a roving camera to be able to come. You're still not getting it, huh? Oh, there we go. If we have a wedding, we can get the bride and the groom from up here to see their faces to record that. I think it'll be a good system. They don't come cheap, but we were able to get a good price for it. So if you're wanting to give, we just pray that you can just put it in and give it, and we'll see what we can do from there. Okay. You still see it up there? That's a good sign. There we go. In 1868, Ellen White had a dream. She was in Battle Creek, Michigan at the time. And in this dream, she saw a journey of a large body of people. She said that their destination was heaven. And they were traveling along in their wagons and horses. Remember back then, they didn't have BMWs and Mercedes and everything else. In fact, about that time of the year was when my grandparents left Illinois by covered wagon and headed to Kansas. And they told me it was a rough ride all the way, no smooth roads. And so they saw the group. They prepared for the journey by packing their wagons full of all of their possessions. But as they traveled along the way, she saw in this dream, as they journeyed, the road began to go upwards, up a mountain. And on one side of the road was a white rock that was towering high. On the other side was a drop-off into a deep precipice. The longer they traveled, guess what happened to the road? It got narrower and steeper. The trail soon got so narrow and so steep that they couldn't continue the journey in their wagons. And so they had to take their possessions off the wagons, leave the wagons behind, put all of their possessions on the horses, plus they tried to climb on the horses as well, too, to ride them. And they started on their journey. As they were going on their ascent, this road got even narrower, causing them to hug the wall of the mountain itself. And they were afraid that they were going to fall off and down to the doom. But the baggage was scraping the side of the mountain, and it was pushing them more and more towards that, that cliff that they were afraid that they were going to fall off. And so they had to cut the baggage from their horses and toss the baggage over the side. The trail, as they went on, became steeper and narrower, so they had to get rid of their horses. 
and go single file on a narrow path up the way, one following the footsteps of the other, hugging the wall as, as close as they could. That's when all of a sudden, miraculously from the sky, came down ropes. Each one had a rope to be able to use for their safety. And they grabbed a hold of that rope and the, and the trail got narrower and narrower until they got so narrow they didn't have any place to put their feet. And they had to rely totally upon this mysterious cord or rope that was hanging from, he- from heaven to carry their weight. Now, I could go on with the story, but I got a copy of the story, if you don't know what it is, in the back. You can take it home and you can read it for yourself to see what happened. But what I really want to look and stop and look at for a moment is the fact that I want to focus today on that baggage that they threw overside. In order for us to stay on our journey to heaven, we have to be willing to throw away many of our cherished possessions. And I'm not talking about material things although there will probably be a time that we may have to leave our material things behind. But we may have to give up baggage that we've been carrying along with us that we haven't really wanted to give up or even allow anyone to know. But it's necessary to be able to give it up because it is a part of our sanctification. We must be willing to give up parts of our old life in order to journey with a new life filled with faith in the Spirit of Christ. Otherwise, it will be impossible to be able to continue on. We're going to learn more of how to rely on the Holy Spirit when we have that seminar that's in your bulletin starting August the 20th. But since we're a part of the Laodicean church, we have to come to a realization that we are not able really to see those things that we harbor in our lives that hinder us from experiencing the fullness of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We can't see these things because Revelation chapter 3 says that we're blind. We're unable to see these things. I want to look at another story that's found in the Old Testament. It's found Job chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. Job to kind of give you the context, here we go with Job. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything. Do you believe God can do everything? And that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. What is the purpose of God within our lives? To be able to save us and give us eternal life. That's his purpose. And he's not going to withhold anything from us He wants to fulfill that task. You ask, God asked, Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. And you said, I will question you and you shall answer me. Notice what Job says next in verse 5. He says, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Notice the change. 
At first, he wasn't really seeing the things of God. He just heard. Many of us came into our Christian experience by hearing biblical truths from someone else who took the time to witness to us. They shared with us things in simple Bible studies. They shared with us some things that maybe some of us had never ever seen before. And we became what we call converted. In this conversion experience, we changed our lives drastically from what it was in the past. Some of you remember that. For me, I started going to church because in my past, we never ever went to church when I was young. It was just as foreign as foreign could be. We lived so far out in the country, it was just too far to be able to go to the church. And we lived on a farm, so we were constantly working. So I started going to church. That was different. For the most part, oh, the other things I had to change, I had to change by keeping the Sabbath. That was totally different because all in my family kept Sunday when they went to church. I had to stop associating with the party animal friends that I used to associate with because they were too much of a temptation. It was just a, it was a huge change within my life. So after that change of going now to church, of keeping the Sabbath, I go home each week feeling pretty good about myself. And for the most part, we, we think that that's all that's necessary in becoming a Christian is just that conversion. I heard and I was changed. But we're coming to a point where that's not enough. We're living a different life now than what it used to be. And it's kind of like getting out of the wagon and leaving it behind and traveling by horse up the mountain towards heaven. But there's some other things that I'm carrying with me that I need to get rid of. There are things that I really don't want to let go. The baggage that I keep carrying. The things that I still want to carry from my past. And all it's doing is slowing down my journey to heaven. Do you want to see what God really expects from us as Christians? Matthew 5, verse 48. Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. We might say, well, I'm already perfect because I'm a Christian and I have the robe of Christ's righteousness over me. And that's true. I do have that. That is my justified life, the righteousness of Christ. But there's still this life that I live, that I'm still, I'm still sinful. And God wants to make some changes in me and He wants me to prepare me for heaven but a lot of these things that I carry with me hinders the full experience of the Holy Spirit from really working within my life. The goal of sanctification is to allow the Holy Spirit to control me in such a way that my life changes even more to become more 
perfect like Jesus was perfect when he was here on this earth. In order to do that, the Holy Spirit is going to do something that we don't want him to do. He's going to take our bags that we carry with us and he's going to open them up. And all of a sudden our unmentionables are going to be exposed. The things that we try to hide from others, the things that we don't want revealed about our lives, in fact, we don't even want to see these things ourselves. Let's go back to Job 42, verses 5 and 6. We already read 5. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. We, we have to come to our experience where we see God differently now. What he's really trying to do is for my benefit. So now my eyes see you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. When God opened Job's eyes, he actually saw himself for the first time and he hated what was revealed to him. Notice that when he saw these things, he repented. I went to the dictionary. I'm amazed as I looked up the word repent, what it means in the dictionary. Not repentance, but repent. Repent is actually a Latin word that means to drop to your knees and crawl in the dirt like a worm. An earthworm crawls in the dirt. Well, now that's strange. But the Bible definition means I need to feel sorry for something within my life. Let's call it sin. For sin that's in my life. And I crawl in mercy before God desiring to change. Job says that I go through the ashes and the dust. I don't like what I see, so I come down on my knees. I can't get any lower. And I say, God, help me. That's repentance. And then it allows God for this big, huge turnaround that can take place within my life. So really, we have to ask, well, what is an unacceptable lifestyle because I have to know what it is that I'm doing wrong. Keep in mind, we don't like to know what we're doing wrong. Now, we could spend a lifetime searching all the things that are unacceptable to God. But for the sake of time, let's just look at just a few examples. Ezekiel 14, verses 6 through 8. Look at this. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, that's God's people, so it's speaking to us. Thus says the Lord God, repent, turn away from your idols, and turn your faces away from all your abominations. For any one of the house of Israel or of the 
strangers who sojourn in Israel, who separates himself from me and sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity, then comes to a prophet to inquire of him concerning me. I, the Lord, will answer him by my, by myself. I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb, and I will cut him off from the midst of my people. So what is considered an idol? Because he says, whoever sets the idol. But notice that it's in the heart. Is it a statue? Like what they made of the golden calf? An idol, it says here in Ezekiel, is something that separates us from God. That puts a bigger barrier between myself and the God who's out to save me. Something that preoccupies our thoughts, hindering us from experiencing God in the fullness. It can be money. It could be, oh, heaven forbid, the television. It could be the luxuries of life. It could be sports. Sorry, guys. Oh. It could be our friends. It could even be our work. This list just goes on and on and on. It's something that is hindering hindering me from experiencing God. It's either taking up my time, or it's taking up my thoughts, or it's something that is tempting me to stay away from God. Anything that distracts me from that connection of God. Now, Knowing and trusting the Holy Spirit as I do. I bet right now some of you are already getting something in your mind saying, that's my idol. And do you know what I say to you if that's the case? That's the power of the Holy Spirit that's saying, this is what's hindering you from experiencing my power. And I want you to say, Repent. Here's the problem. When I said that something is popping into your minds right now, I didn't hear anyone say amen. Because we don't want to face these things. What we should be saying is, Lord, have mercy upon me. A sinner. Well, now there's the amens. Lord, have mercy upon me. We just don't want to see our unmentionables. But we're to repent. Jesus often said, repent and sin no more. Maybe we need to drop to our knees and repent for these idols that are within our own mind that are within our homes. Maybe we need to get rid of the baggage. 
Maybe there's some kind of an idol that has replaced God in your life. And you just don't have time for Him. Go to Luke 13, verses 1 to 5. This is interesting. Jesus is going to use like we would use the the main headlines of a newspaper. I, I guess newspapers are going out, showing my age. The news headlines found on the internet. Jesus says there were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Evidently there was some that, that, that uh, Pilate had killed because of their religious beliefs. And Jesus answered and said to them, saying to his disciples, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? He continues on, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or here's the other news flash. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will, you will all likewise perish. What is he talking about? The belief in the days of Jesus was that if a person dies or suffers, they were being punished by God. And when that happens, and they think that, then all of a sudden, that starts spreading through the community. You know the gossip line. Did you hear about so-and-so that was killed? He must have died that God was punishing him. I knew he was a sinner. It's when... It's easy for us to point out the sins of others. Look what they're doing. Look what's going on. Look what Jesus said. Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck out of your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck out of the brother's eye. Oh, how we like to point out the faults of others, thinking that we're doing God's work as a watchman. We condemn the faults of our spouses, of our children, of our friends, even members of the church family. But we certainly don't like it when they turn the tables around and they begin to point out our mistakes. No, we want to lash out at them. I demand an apology. How dare you say that about me? But do you think that we'd apologize to someone else for saying it about them? No way. If, I, if, if what I'm saying describes you, that you sometimes go around pointing out the faults of your family members in your church and your friends 
and your workers. Let me tell you something. It's time to repent and crawl in the dust to seek mercy from God. If we're not changing, if we're just saying, you know, all this sounds good and we play church, but we're not changing on the inside, what good does it do us? Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. You would have thought as Christians that this would never have to be put in the Bible, that it would just come automatically. But it doesn't. I was teaching a class one time at camp meeting, and I mentioned how important it was for husbands to, to express his love to his wife. And one woman spoke up and said, you know, I would give anything to have my husband tell me at least once in my lifetime that he loved me. I've had wives tell me how their husbands curse at them. I've actually heard husbands cursing their wives out on the cell phone that they think that I couldn't hear. And I'm standing six to ten feet away and I could hear every distinct word. I have wives tell me how their husbands beat them, how they are ignored, how they yell at kids, how they even kick the dog. But yet they come the next Sabbath to church and they are the elders of the church, respected by all the members. Don't say it doesn't happen, because it happens even in this church. Is that the way Jesus wants husbands to act in their homes? Men, we may need to crawl on our knees in repentance to seek the Holy Spirit to help us treat our families better with the respect that Jesus says that they need. Ephesians 5 verse 24. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Sorry to say that some men use this as a weapon to make their wives do whatever they want. And I've actually heard that before. You're subject to me, so you have to do anything and everything that I say. But Christ doesn't rule a church like some men rule their wives. The church is made up of various parts that harmonize together and work together and help each other and complement each other. That's what a home should be like. But, in reality, I do have to say, ladies, sometimes a decision has to be made in our homes. Now, the best thing to do as husband and wife is to discuss it together. But if there is no clear agreement as to what to do, and it doesn't break any of God's rules, the husband may have and should make a decision. Whether it's right or wrong, it's still a decision that they should make, and a wise wife will allow him to make that decision. If it's a good decision... You need to praise your husband that he's made a right decision. Uplift him. If it's wrong, please don't say, 
I knew it wouldn't work. You always make lousy decisions. No wonder he blows his stack. If it was a wrong decision, just admit that it was not the best thing and work together with the power of the Holy Spirit to correct the wrong and make it right. Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 4. Children, okay, young folks, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. Here's the promise. That it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. You'll have to admit with me that as we look in many places in this earth, there's very little respect that children have for their parents. We see it every day. Even children need to learn to repent. But notice how the verse tells the father not to provoke their children to wrath. Sometimes, and we can include the wives and the mothers in this as well too, sometimes they react because they are seeing how we as parents react to situations. When we lose control, guess what they're going to do? When we rule them with an iron fist to be able to make them to do something, guess what they're going to do? Many times the lack of respect comes from the way parents treat their children. That doesn't mean we should give them anything and everything that they want. But it does say that we should train them by our example of respecting others. Proverbs 22, verse 6, we often memorize this text. Train up a child in a way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from us. Many of us claim this promise over and over again as our kids become adults and they drop out of the church. But I want to go a little bit deeper in that. I want to look at this text from a little different standpoint. If you ask any of our Sabbath school teachers who teach our children in our children's division, they will tell you that the very few of our children understand even the basic Bible stories. They can't even tell you much about Noah's Ark. They can't tell you anything about David. They can't tell you anything about a lot of these stories. It's as if it is very foreign to them. And it's not the responsibility of our Sabbath school teachers to train our children in one Sabbath per week about these stories. Take a look at Adventist Home, page 188. For some reason, many parents dislike to give their children religious instruction and they leave them to pick up in Sabbath school the knowledge which it is their privilege and duty to impart. Such parents fail to fulfill the responsibility laid upon them to give their children an all-around education. It is the responsibility of the parents to be able to have family worship at home and to teach them the basics of the Bible. How do you expect them to, re to treat you with respect 
if they don't even know or understand what the biblical idea of respect is? How do, they, how do you expect them to be able to repent of their sins? How do you expect them to be able to come in and to honor their father and their mother when they don't even know what the biblical meaning of it is? Biblical training begins at home, period. There is a need to have worship, to pray, and to memorize Bible verses in our home. A few minutes every day can do great wonders in the relationship of our children and ourselves. But make sure you make it enjoyable and not a drudgery. There's another area that I want to touch on this morning. As long as I'm hitting, I might as well stomp all your toes. Last week I was talking with with Gary McClarty after church. Gary is the president of the uh, Mesa Grande Academy School Board. He made a statement that I've been thinking about all week long. And I think that every parent should take into consideration. He said this. I hope I get it all right. I didn't get it all word for word. I should have had my computer and typed it all down. If you're going to send your child to public school, you better make sure it's a direct calling from God to do so. Let me let that soak in for a moment. Do you remember Daniel? He was educated in the schools of Babylon. I believe he was sent by God for that purpose. And God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, plus the upbringing that he received from his parents as a child, helped him in this, this public, you can call it a public school, in this government-controlled school to be able to maintain his Christian uh, beliefs and to be a tremendous witness. But not all people are Daniels. Some people believe that public schools offer a better education than a church school. That's not true. A recent study compared students in our Adventist schools with students in public school and private school where they all took the same basic skills test. So everybody's taking the same test all over the United States and Canada. So they're taking the exact same tests. They're ministered to them, administered to them in the same way, the same time period. There isn't anything that's changed. And you know what? When they combined all the scores together, let me tell you that the scores were higher in all areas for Adventist students compared with public and private schools. If you combine with that with parents that have regular worship and Bible study at home and you, can, and you bring the children to come to school and, and, and then you bring them to church, guess how superior your child might become. Testimonies, Volume 6. Now listen to this, page 203. In the last days, isn't that what we're living in now? In the last days... Children's voices will be raised to give the last message of warning to a perishing world. The Spirit of God will come upon the children and they will do a work in the proclamation of the truth 
which the older workers cannot do. In other words, children are going to reach people that we as adults will not be able to reach. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon them in such a way that it's going to be amazing what takes place. Now, let's continue on. Our church schools are ordained by God to prepare the children for this great work. You will not get it in a public school. And if you send them to other church schools, other private schools, they're going to teach their beliefs, but they're not going to prepare these young boys and girls to be able to understand and to proclaim the three angels' message because they have no clue what a three angels' message is. By the way, they discovered that Adventist children who are brought up in Adventist schools do better even if they go to a secular college. They do better than those who go through public school and go on to college. Maybe it's high time we look at the dirty undies of our homes and repent and crawl on our knees to God to seek His help. If you've read any of Paul's writings, you will notice that the last chapter or two of all of his letters gives a description of how a sanctified life should be displayed within our churches. He tells of how we should live in our homes And by the grace and the power of God, how it's to change us. Not only in our homes, but in our community and even in our work. It would would be the best thing that ever happened if we were to read these passages. And as we're reading them, to ask God where we need to change in our own lives and repent. To begin to open our eyes and to see ourselves. One more text. Ezekiel, back to Ezekiel again, chapter 18, verse 30. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel. There's God's people again. Everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. There are three words in the Bible that describe sin. There's the word sin itself, which means just that. It's an act. It's the act of doing something wrong. We either do it consciously or we do it unconsciously. The other word that's used here in Ezekiel is the word transgression. Transgression means committing a sin that I consciously know is wrong in the eyes of God, but I'm going to do it anyway. I know God says don't do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. I know it's against God's law, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's transgression. When I transgress God's law, when I do it anyway, that sets me up, that leads me deeper into the third word that describes sin, and that's iniquity, which basically means selfishness. 
controlled by my own desires and having it done my own way. It was the selfishness of Lucifer wanting to be God that got him kicked out of heaven. Our selfish, strong wills must be broken and we must admit that we are selfish. We need to repent of our selfishness. We need to stop the transgressions, those things that we know that are wrong, but we're going to do them anyway, and come crawling back to God, seeking forgiveness and help to be able to break us from our evil thoughts and our evil ways. It's time to throw off some of our bags that we carry and to make a huge turnaround by seeking the power of God himself. Because really, who am I to tell God what to do? He's the one that needs to be leading me. We're not going to sing the closing hymn. But we're going to ask Cherry and Enoch to come up and to be able to share with us the talent that God has given to them of the song, Who Am I? And as they're singing this song, I want you to be thinking about yourself and your family. What is it that God's trying to reveal to me today? And if he's revealed something in my life, am I going to repent or am I going to transgress and say, I'm going to do it anyway? Think about it and then we'll pray afterwards.